hello and welcome to another episode of Fintech Insider News. We are coming to you this week from WeWork London. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined today by my colleague, human cyborg, Aidan Davies. Aidan, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Good, good. And we have two amazing guests with us for the news. Of course, we have the returning Gela Boschkovitz. How are you? I'm fabulous, Simon. How are you? Very well. And Sarah Kachansky back with us again. Hello again. Hello. Okay, let's get on with the news. Okay, so the first one up, we could have picked so many articles for this. There could have been so much to be written, so many column inches. Uh, But this is the amount of political news in the past week and its impact on financial services. There was... Trump and Comey. There was the Dodd-Frank piece that got hidden that day as well, whilst Comey was being interviewed by the kind of select committee equivalents that in the That wasn't US. even, the Dodd-Frank repeal motion wasn't even under the fold. It was buried inside of the newspaper for all intents and purposes. And that's more troubling than anything else. And we'll come to that. And then also there was a small matter of the UK election. So, I mean, where do you even want to start with that? Sarah, do you have some thoughts? <laughs> a nap is where I'd like to start with that. Um, so, I, I mean, in terms of the UK election, I think the un- ongoing uncertainty is just terrible for everybody. Like, that's, that's never going to be a good thing. Um, I was at MoneyConf this week speaking to people, and they were just saying, we're not making any decisions until Brexit happens or until we know what's happening. So everybody's on pause, which is not great for whether you're a fintech or whether you're a bank. It's, it's not really very good for anyone. Um, on the US side, I watched the, the Comey... It wasn't a deposition, was it? Whatever, whatever it was hearing, called. Hearing, testimony. Yeah. Um, and all I have to comment on that is his contempt for Trump was quite spectacular. <laughs> the word is palpable, I believe. Yeah. You, could, you could feel it. It was like a physical warmth or coldness. I don't know what temperature you want to pick, but it came through the screen. It was magnificent. Unbelievable. Um, and then the Dodd-Frank piece is something that I'd, I'd looked at beforehand and was concerned it's gone through. Now it's gone through. It's going to be really interesting. In one sentence, that's, you know, good for banks, bad for consumers, as far as I can tell. <laughs> so what was the Dodd-Frank thing, Gallo? Well, it's the it's the Financial Choice Act for all intents and purposes. And it's a, it's a very complex, very lengthy set of regulation that uh, was supposed to preserve the financial uh, stability of the U.S. economy and certainly the, the, the financial system. Unfortunately, it's now being revisited and potentially repealed. What it was, it was, it was a Consumer Protection Act for all intents and purposes. And it wasn't very friendly to Wall Street, uh, but it was definitely with the end consumer in mind. And Elizabeth Warren in particular has been an advocate for keeping this in place. Unfortunately, over the weekend, uh, there was a motion to revisit and repeal the Dodd-Frank Act. And that means that regulation in the U.S. gets much more complex as they go, as the Senate and, and House go to revisit what this actually means for the end consumer. So this is sort of 2008 um, and, and afterwards. We've got a post-financial crisis reaction set of regulation. And whilst the world is watching what's happening on this stage with uh, with the former director of the FBI, there's, a, there's a, a bill passed through one of the U.S. houses, but not the other one, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it was Trump always said he was going to do it. It was one of his, you know, uh, election promises, if you like. He said he was going to repeal it. Um, uh, repealing it, it's much harder than you, he can't just say, that's it, it's over. They have to pull it apart and then they have to pull, get different parts of it changed and updated. I mean, long story short, exactly as you said, it was it was a ridiculous number of pages. It was like 20,000 pages, wasn't it, by the time it was finished. And it was very complicated and it cost banks a lot of money to, to implement it. And that meant they had not a lot of money left for anything else, which upset them. Um, on the other hand, it did put a lot of consumer protection things in place, in particular the CFPB, mm-hmm. the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, um, which did a lot of work for helping American consumers who had been hit by damage from you know, 2008 fallout, let's call it, 
Um, and that that is the, the the main target right now. They want to just get rid of it. They don't want to even like replace it. They just want to be done with that. Um, and that is just terrifying. So basically, what the, the 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 what it will do this this replacement act they're putting forward will basically allow banks to skimp on um, consumer protection if they can prove X, Y, and Z. So if they they put much easier targets in place, the banks hit them, and then they no longer have to have particular. They don't have to be a member of the CFPB. Um, they will no longer bail banks out. On banks, then they can think, you can look at that either way. But if you're not going to bail a bank out, who's going to suffer? It's customers, and here it's customers, the consumers. So. Well, good. <laughs> and Barney, Barney Frank was one of the forces behind it, and now Barney no longer is really active in the space. So the fact of the matter is you don't have champions again. I think the only person that really is going to maybe potentially fight this is Elizabeth Warren. And she has a long history of, of being contrarian in, in that sense, contrarian in, to banks, in that she is a, a consumer protection advocate. And I think therein lies the trouble is that before this last uh, major election in the U.S., you had a set of people that were willing to fight for this. And the fact that Trump um, is now pushing for one of his platform pieces and actually has the GOP behind him, uh, it's deregulation for banks, which is always problematic, um, especially when you're looking at having no oversight. And not even from a consumer protection perspective. You've got less oversight from the SEC. You've got less oversight from the Fed. You've got less oversight over around. And even though the, the regulation was complex, the fact of the matter is it was put in place to try to prevent another crisis. The other side of this, which I have seen, and I'm not, I'm not sure where I come down on is that for those smaller startups, life gets easier because there's fewer rules to abide by. They have more space to play. Their end consumers maybe, <laughs> again, are not, are not protected. But, but see, it's they, the FDIC insurance, for example. It's that same notion of, is your deposit actually insured? Well, if you're not a regulated startup or if you don't play by the same rules, then the only place you're going to have uh, attempt to reconcile is in court. And a court of cost is costly. So at the end of the day, whoever is petitioning against against the, uh, the, the, the the plaintiff is or the, the defendant is actually going to suffer. So it could be consumer, it could be another bank, it could be another startup. But at the end of the day, there are, no, there are fewer fewer metrics to actually hit in order to prove, uh, prove cause. It, it's interesting that you know, fintech could be really hit both positively and negative by a regulation. Um, and these things are unbelievably complex. And, and even if uh, it, they do manage to repeal it, it looks like there's only bits of it they can mm -hmm. repeal um, because the uh, they've got to make it through the Senate. It's only yeah. passed the House so far. Um, and then th in the Senate right now, they're also fighting the repeal of the Obamacare yeah. stuff. So there's that big one in the way. So there's, there's some big battles there. Um, but the reason some of the bits and pieces could get through are procedural because they're able to potentially include it in the next budget cycle, yeah. uh, which which is really interesting. So there's a couple of elements from an international perspective. Um, the famous Volcker rule uh, is is kind of one of the rules that's really impacted uh, how banks can invest in other vehicles like uh, VC firms and others and act more like asset managers as they used to. That kind of split uh, has kind of disappeared uh, to a certain degree. Um, so that could be really impacted. So if you're a bank and you're impacted by the Volcker rule, that could go with the next budget, which would be a really interesting thing to watch. And then another one is the orderly liquidation provisions for failing banks relying on the bankruptcy code. Now, that sounds like something just like terms and condition-y, but actually this was um, kind of a, a piece, again, to react specifically to the financial crisis and allow us to sell off assets of banks in an orderly fashion should something like a financial crisis happen. Repealing that means I, I almost don't see the value. Maybe I'm missing some of the complexity there. But Well, uh, when you're looking, say, at the Glass-Steagall Act, right, which was anti-monopoly, it's the same principle as how you redistribute the, the failed assets. And that comes into a natural oligopoly 
oligopoly state or a natural oligopoly model. And one of the things that, that the Dodd-Frank Act was supposed to do was to minimize the options for natural monopoly slash oligopoly in the financial services sector. So when you're talking about the Volcker rule, I can't even say it, Volcker rule um, and the redistribution of assets, that actually plays a, a big, big deal in who has the biggest balance sheet and then can, can take another M&A approach, another M&A strategy. So it's a ripple effect. Aidan, any thoughts here to add? Well, I like to Barney Frank's comment. Uh, he said uh, the original bill uh, dismissed the vote as theatre. The very conservative Republicans in the House, this is their show. So uh, obviously a man who spent thousands and thousands of hours trying to get this through and now seeing it set fire to, uh, clearly not a fan of that. Um, and I, I guess coming back to the Consumer Finance and Protection Bureau, easy to say, it just feels another example of Don, Donald Trump's thin skin. He obviously, and, and as was clear on the campaign trail, he's not a fan of Elizabeth Warren, and I guess many bankers aren't a fan of her either, but it seems like a, a personal vendetta in some ways to destroy what, what she has built there. And I think it'd be interesting to see if she uses it as a, a kind of on-ramp to uh, her running for president, maybe, in four years, because uh, she's one of the few people who's uh, very vocally stood up uh, against these uh, measures. So we'll see where that goes. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. I'm obviously a very fairly left wing. And uh, yeah, it just, it just seems like the, the old ways easier to, uh, you know, to bring back in again. No, I think I think in your you've got a, a point. I think it's very much politics. And when Elizabeth Warren has been one of the most vocal uh, opponents of Trump uh, and has already sort of hinted around it running in 2020, um, that this is this is definitely a, a, a play to try to weaken her base or to try to weaken some of her, her platform agenda. Um, who knows what will happen? I think uh, given American politics, there's always a swing in the cycle. So we go from one extreme to the other. There's very rarely a recalibration. There will probably be a shift to the left for the next election cycle, even the midterm, and what that actually means for the next four years. But let's look at the Comey testimony, and then let's look at the evidence that has come up over the weekend in terms of what they're now talking about at the AG's office, or at least some of the former AGs are saying that um, there is enough evidence to begin an obstruction of justice case against Trump. So the complexities of what's going to happen with Dodd-Frank may actually be derailed with some of this, you know, some of the talk around uh, evidence of, of misconduct and certainly evidence of obstruction and what that let me put it this way. I'm not going to bank on Dodd-Frank being repealed next week, precisely because there are too many other things that are distracting the rest of Washington. And it's politics. It's almost all politics, except for uh, some of the actual investigation. Everything else is just political, and it can wait for the time being. This makes a lot, a lot of sense, Gala. And I think one thing we know for certain is nothing's for certain. <laughs> uh, uh, there's there's so much complexity here. And as Sarah, you were saying that the, there's a lot of people just not planning to do things right now um, on, on the corporate side but when i speak to a lot of startups they say hey the world's always been uncertain if you're small and you've just kind of got to get keep your head down and get on with things and plan as if you're going to succeed and when things come at you 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 just adjust around them and i think uh, fintech is especially well armed to be able to do that because they're small because they can make decisions quickly whereas large organizations love to, to chatter about this stuff and then ultimately do very 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 little other than um have strategic meetings but hopefully though we'll see uh, we'll see opportunities for people but we got to move on to some more 
traditional fintechy stuff. The first story is one in Recode, where Apple have announced their own Venmo competitor built into iMessage. And for those not familiar with Venmo, Venmo is a person-to-person app. So I can send money to Geller or to Sarah or to Aiden very easily just by simply sending them uh, a quick message um, with the amount of money I I want them to receive. The catch is they also have to be a Venmo user, so we all have to sign up to Venmo. Venmo, of course, famously owned by PayPal um, and a big part of the growth story of PayPal in recent years. They've done particularly well in the US but haven't really grown outside it. But we've seen peer-to-peer do really well um, famously with WeChat in in China um, but also in other parts of the world in Southeast Asia. Hasn't really caught on in Europe. There's been lots of things like Barclays Ping It really tried it. Circle has launched here. Uh, The peer-to-peer hasn't really caught fire here. Um, Maybe you could argue it did in the US with Venmo, maybe it hasn't, uh, but building it directly into iMessage, this this is interesting. What do you think Apple's play is here? I think I got caught out on this last time. I was on, we talked about this, and I was kind of shouted down, so I'm, I'm going to be cautious today. Um, I, think, I think Apple users are loyal and they have money. So this makes sense to to try and capture the market that has been so successfully, you would argue, taken over by Venmo and people like Square Cash. It makes sense in that, you know, they, they've got to get in there. They are coming late to market here, I would say. Also, um, Venmo and Square Cash, you can link to iMessage. So you don't, if you're already a Venmo customer, you don't need to use Apple. You can just use Venmo through your iMessage, which is interesting. Um, I, I'm really not sure of Apple's play. This isn't an area I know a huge lot about. I guess it's loyalty again. I, my guess is that it would be cross-selling eventually. Um, they start with this. This is a relatively easy one to build and play with. And then maybe they go deeper into financial services once they've got their heads around this. I mean, they've already got your, your card details. Let's start with like moving some money around. And then maybe we see if we get more complex like WeChat has done and start selling you insurance or, I don't know, whatever, investment products or whatever else um, would be my guess. No, I, I think the logic is they do have a, a, a customer base, right? So it's an immediate... Uh, it's an immediate play to capture that particular market, right? They, that's an easy sell. They don't have to go marketing. They have to launch a new product. They simply roll it into a set of services that exists. I think the interesting thing is this still keeps them out of a regulated space. And so when we look at the new product builds or the new the, the new types of, of um, financial services offerings that they may build into it, I think they'll skirt around up until they actually have to apply for a license. And they don't have to worry about liquidity. They don't have to worry about cap, Basel three, all of that sort of stuff. So this is a way to actually capture lot of the market without worrying about capital markets regulations or capital liquidity regulations. It actually makes a lot of sense when you take Apple Pay and then turn it to peer-to-peer. It's the next logical step for any payment application, right? So it's it's a natural roadmap for them. I don't know what the grand vision would necessarily be. I can't even speculate on it. But quite frankly, it, it's why would I download an app from Venmo or from Pingit or from Square and have another third party who already has my details add add more of my details out there. This seems to sort of corral that and gives a single player access to my singular API permission. If and that's, you use iMessage. If I use iMessage. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, most of the time, most of us who do have iPhones are, are generally doing that. It's, rather, it's rarely SMS, it's mostly iMessage. Mm-hmm. And the ubiquity of that globally, they don't have to worry about a single geography. That's the other play. They're not operating just in North America or just in Europe or just in Africa. They've got a global captive market. 
Yes, they do, but the way you use this product is similar to Square Cash. You have to take out a prepaid card, load that prepaid card, and then you can send it through this uh, iMessage platform. So I think the, the business case you just laid out makes complete sense if the technology that was supporting it allowed them to do exactly that. Um, it, it doesn't yet, just yet, though. It, it doesn't just yet. But I think my regulators would have something to say if I could start sending money to people in other countries via iMessage without it being trackable via prepaid card. Well, how how much is iMessage actually encrypted too? That's the other question I have is, is this fully encrypted end to end? I don't know. Apple have been quite good about committing to that, but I don't know if they've ever said iMessages. Um, Aidan, if you're sitting in a bank innovation team, what are your thoughts on this right now? Uh, I agree. You just mentioned the, the plastic card. There's, a, there's an interesting branding element there, isn't there? People getting out their Apple card, card to, pay. to pay. Something that I can imagine. I can imagine. But, but I think you don't actually get the card to for everyday use. The card's pure purpose is to load up um, that peer-to-peer payment capability, which when you've already got Apple Pay and Apple Pay is already linked to your debit and credit card, it, it's an interesting one. Um, there, is, there is something there if, if there could be a plastic brand. But also, I think uh, the last time when we talked about this, when Sarah was on and we were talking about Square, um, I think we may be seeing this from a UK point of view. And that the US, this why Venmo has become so massive, that they never had this ability to just send money between people. Um, so, uh, one, Apple is huge in the US, huge on you know both coasts where there are, as uh, Sarah said earlier, rich, loyal people. So, there is a, a chance for this to really get to scale. But again, whether that translates globally, I, I don't yet know. Um, it is interesting, but for me, as as I've said previously, as not really an Apple person, it's 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 a closed ecosystem. It's Apple adding another layer to their closed ecosystem. Whereas seeing what things happen in something like um, WhatsApp in this space would be far more interesting to me because that's just across all devices, all countries, and that's where it would get really interesting. But- and yeah, we should probably say that um, Sarah is quite often right about these things. So um, even though you may have been shouted down, you time will probably prove that you'll be right once once more. So um, moving on from Apple, um, let's continue to watch this one, see if, see if that does gain traction. I'd love to see numbers. They've been very quiet with their numbers on Apple Pay. Um, but we've got to move on because uh, the next story up, Sarah, there's one here where Atom, God, everything's beginning with A today. Atom have postponed their current account launch, uh, Atom being the challenger bank in the UK. Yeah, so um, it actually is quite logical when you look at why they've done it. So there are many, many, not many, many, but lots of People who were trying to challenge the banks in the UK in, in various different forms right now, a lot of them have gone with a current account product and they've kind of like staked their, you know, their that's gonna be their first live product, that's what they're gonna do, that's how they're gonna how they're gonna get out there and attract market share. Atom didn't do that. Atom went out with a, a savings and a small business lending play with a mortgage to follow. That gets you a revenue stream quite quickly. It also gives you liquidity, it also gives you capital. So why would they bother doing a current account which is going to be very complicated and not make them much money especially in an environment that in the uk which is where they're based is going to change early next year we've got stuff coming out of the cma we've got stuff coming out of the eu i mean they they said it was because of regulation um i spoke to, to mark who's the the ceo at uh, MoneyConf this week and he was you know that was absolutely his point we could do some their current account is ready they could launch it but the rules around current accounts are going to change in January. They don't want to launch something and then spend a load of money to change it. Like that, That's just silly. They don't 
needed. Some of these neobanks or challenger banks, whatever you want to call them, need a current account out there now. It's that because they said they're going to do it and that's how they're going to bring people in. And then they're going to, I don't know, cross sell or do overdrafts, whatever else. Atom doesn't need it. So why do it right now when it's more likely to cost them money than make them money? I think it's quite sensible. I think that's also, if I may put my cynical hat on very briefly, a fantastic excuse. Oh, yeah. No, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as, as excuses go, it's hard to launch a current account So and things change. Well, yeah, they're always going to change. It's always going to be hard launching a current account. And Atom hasn't received rave reviews for its products in other sectors so far, and they've raised an awful lot of money. I, I just wonder if there's a bit, of, um, a bit of great showmanship there. Well, yeah, I mean, there could well be. There could also be the point that um, whether, whether it's showmanship or not, they still don't need to. You just said how much they've got hundred over hundred million in the bank or close to right now. They've got some really big investors, some heavyweight guys behind them. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's more complicated than that. Maybe the tech isn't right. Maybe they haven't got the rules in the right place. Maybe they're struggling with the the UK regulators. But I still I still don't think it's the end of the world. Like I don't I don't think it's a catastrophe. Uh, you know we've seen some some of these new banks hit pretty hard recently. You know Tandem losing its funding that's a problem. Atom postponing its current account. Don't think it's a huge deal. You no, know, it's a nice problem to have that you can yeah. take that choice and still be still be doing pretty pretty well. Yeah. And you can have you can even afford Will I Am on your board. It's, uh... <laughs> Let's not talk about that. We can't not talk about it. <laughs> but I mean, it, either way, it's a legitimate excuse or it's a legitimate reason. You can either wear the cynic hat and say it's an excuse. Or you can say actually, it makes a lot of sense to wait another six months to get clarity on what the new current account rules are. So nobody knows the underbelly, the under kimono reasons, but either way, I think the market will, will swallow it and, and find it sensible. It does kind of also raise a point about the regulatory sort of uh, confusion, complexity, what, whatever you want to call it. And again, like Brexit's only going to make that worse. So if you're already struggling with these regulatory, you've got seven different regulatory bodies who want you to do seven different things, and then you've got Brexit on top of that. I can see more people going, you know what, I should do something simpler for the time being. Well, then that puts like, that, that puts the entire neobank sector on pause for a good however long it yeah. takes to get clarity. So what's is this real competition, or is just are they faffing about? That's the ultimate question. If you can afford to wait and see, then why not? And if yeah. you can't afford to wait and see, then ship and deal with it as it happens. I think yeah. we're seeing both of those strategies play out, and it's going to be interesting anything to add from yourself sir obviously i'm the same as you simon in that uh, slightly more cynical in that it's, it's a fantastic excuse that for a bank that was saying you know we are going to be the first digital bank it feels like they're struggling to be that no no company has, has ever launched a current account early you know when we saw all the supermarkets trying to launch them a few years ago they were late it's so late so uh, whether they're struggling to get this over the line that's what it feels like to me, which is a bit cynical. Um, I, I do think there are issues with them not getting out there because, again, it's it's where they're wanting to position their brand. So it's fine that they are they are targeting the league tables in the mainstream press. You know, they want to be in the Daily Mail's news section every Sunday with a top performing mortgage, a top performing savings account. Fine. That's not the same market that they're going for by hiring Will I Am onto the board. They want to be a, a bank for a younger audience they can't just be a bank for 50 plus people who read those newspapers so without a current account i don't see what they're offering is to a, a far wider market um and i guess it it, it, just, it opens up the market hey, you know we've, we've still only got really starling in beta like I say tandem uh, had to pivot monzo we're not sure when we're going to see it from that but 
I'm, I'm very disappointed with it because I'm, I'm desperate to see some innovation in the current account market in the UK and uh, it's just not coming anytime soon. Which is... So is there a question there that actually it's just not possible to innovate with a current account? Is that actually? Well, I think it's an approach thing, right? So you've got Atom saying, um, so if you look under the hood, they bought um, software from, I think it was either Fiserv or FIS. It, it's kind of known oh, yeah. software that banks have been using for decades. Um, and they did a big, expensive, we're going to build a bank. The same way a lot of the brand challenges did about 10 years ago, the supermarkets, we're going to go and buy from the known vendors. Uh, and what's interesting is both Starling and Monzo said, we're going to build our own from scratch. And I think this is why it's super super interesting in the challenger bank sector because those two philosophies are playing out uh the old philosophy of we have friends in the banking industry we know what we're doing we're going to get a slug of investment in and we're just going to wait for 10 years till we can get all our products out we know this is hard you know this is hard but you know the business model works versus we're going to do this like a startup we're just going to engineer our way around the problems and actually in the banking industry there's not a clear answer to which one of those works which is which is exciting i think i mean monzo's had its own problems recently it's had to to pull back on several things because it hasn't got the capacity to do everything it said it was going to do. I mean, and that's presumably, uh, you know, the fact that it is hard. Nobody, nobody disagrees that this is hard. Um, and you can't, oh God, we can't do everything. It seems like that's pretty much actually the common theme here is everybody going, we can't do everything you said we're going to have to do. Let's have a, a rethink. Um, but you'd expect that from a startup business, surely. But that also lends the question of do we bundle or rebundle and how if we rebundle, what does that really look like? Especially from a, a high street bank perspective, right? So if nobody can do everything well and there has to be change in the current account structure, how does a high street bank actually innovate? And how can you rebundle all of that when you've re you're starting to see players that are doing one or two things very well but can't execute on the bigger picture? That lends an entire question to what's the value of rebundling versus unbundling and then white labeling bundling. And this is something we talk about um, with clients a lot at 11FS is, uh, do you embrace the get off the planet strategy, which is you know your planet's dying, you need to get to a new planet. The digital transformation hasn't worked. People have been trying it for decades. Um, having an app is not the same as being truly digital. And actually, if you are able to build a new stack and gradually build a colony, serve a new generation, perhaps under a new brand, you, you start to be able to do things with a different culture from the ground up. And I think there's something in the what Starling and Monzo have done that doesn't mean that they intrinsically will be successful. But now I had, imagine I had all the advantages of experience and millions of customers, but I had the approach that said, I'm not um, a slave to the uh, legacy of existing vendors old ways of thinking, old ways of doing things, um, and then uh, therefore the same old results. I think that that's a, a huge challenge. But then that's just one perspective, and it's still early. Alrighty, um, moving us on. Uh, Geller, there's a story here in The Telegraph saying Aviva are eyeing AI and big data to become a fintech firm. Uh, well, that's all they need, surely. <laughs> yes. And is it, I, is it I, like I could glitter? Do I just need it? Yes. I'm fabulous all of a sudden? Yes, you need glitter and a little fairy to sprinkle it on you. So, <laughs> no, what's interesting, though, is Aviva, um, from the insurance space, it's a, it's a huge incumbent. Being as simplistic as saying, I need AI and big data in order to transform into a fintech company is a bit uh, a, a bit vague and nebulous and, and certainly... I don't think it's a strategy. Um, they had a they launched a, an innovation program back in 2015, and one of the challenges is they were not able to make they didn't have any success in doing it. They spent a lot of money um, yeah. for product development around this uh, this technology hub, and it failed. Uh, so the fact that they're re-examining types of fintech or types of technology to become how do you become a fintech when you're that big? 
It's, I mean, the, te- the legacy systems. So, so the, the, the point to follow on completely from yours is that they, they he used this example of like, oh, goodness, I can't remember what it's called, like a new online portal that they've launched where you see all your insurance in one place or something. And he said, he actually said it was really hard because we've got legacy systems. And I was like, Yep. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> yep. That's how. It, that's why you're not a fintech because you have legacy systems. systems. And maybe that's just the definition: is how does an incumbent who still is tied to these legacy systems that have been there for 20 years, that are gradually, incrementally updated uh, when they do a new release, but they're not from the ground up digital. Well, if you're an organization where you've got 7,000 systems and you have to thread a new digital system in through those 7,000 systems, it's utterly impossible. It's gonna be hard. And opening a garage in Hoxton with some developers isn't gonna be the answer um but but i think also you know aviva i do talk about here the chief executive mark wilkinson says 321 year old insurance giant they've built a pretty good balance sheet and that's true like incumbents have an advantage especially in the insurance sector they've been doing okay like they've got the cash on hand to do this right maybe it's just the thinking that needs to change because the business model had worked i suspect the, the the thinking is starting to change when you're looking at what ai machine learning and big data can do in terms of uh changing actuarial tables and changing credit and profile uh, risk mm-hmm. or risk profiles, that that's very, very different. When you're talking about claims processing and having that sort of digital experience where it's a one-click, two-click to get a claims processed and you have the fraud overlay where you can see if it's been double submitted, et cetera, et cetera, that's, that's efficiencies. But when you start to revamp the model with a different actuarial table based on very, very different market segmentation, has nothing to do with the demographics demographics that we understand insurance to be now you can you can go away from that it's age related it's gender related it is uh, location related it happens to be very different so ai can fundamentally transform the model and big data can help them actually process it very very quickly in terms of micro claims and and temporary insurance that that's really important but it does come back to whether or not the legacy stack can actually handle that information same old thinking um same old vendors same old problems but he, he's not wrong in saying that big data and ai could help but actually it's not a silver bullet there's a there's a culture and a knowledge gap and an execution gap to be able to actually deliver on the promise of those wanting everything gell has just talked about is is fine being able to deliver it's the hard part so this is what I think is interesting when you look at the insurance industry and insure tech or whatever you want to call it. Nobody, nobody is denying that AI and big data are going to help these risk models. They, they can't, they can't help but make things better. Um, what's really interesting to me is you look at those reinsurers. They're not trying to do this. What's a reinsurer? Ah, yeah. <laughs> so um, you have you have your insurers who are the brands that everybody knows. Your Aviva, your AXA, wherever you are, um, and then you have reinsurers, and these are very. Very, very big companies that basically insure the insurers. At the, the, the most basic, that's what they do. They haven't been consumer-facing until now, really. People haven't really heard of them, and I suspect most people outside of this room probably haven't really heard of them very much as well. Geek out, I dig it. Yeah, <laughs> but what they're doing is, like, particularly one called Munich Re, there's also this brilliant thing that they're the only industry I know who puts the name of what they are in the company. So it's Munich Re, Swiss Re, Hanover Re. Um, and they are investing in startups which have got the technology who are doing exciting interesting things using those risk models that don't have the legacy stack and they're just underwriting they're just saying we trust you we we trust you we trust your technology you know obviously you're going to report back to us and show us what your losses are and how this is working and you're going to readjust constantly but like we will just take a share of the money we'll just underwrite you take a share of the profits and let you do all the tech thing well what's interesting is munich re for example is part of the startup bootcamp and sure tech mm-hmm. program right so they are they are looking at it differently but 
when we let's step back a little bit and say reinsurance was one of the primary players in the financial crisis. And that's what's interesting is people don't understand it wasn't actually the insurance on the securities that were taken out. It was the reinsurance. It was the gamble. And that makes it even more complex. So Aviva does have a, a line of reinsurance, but it's a general insurance itself. Thing is, when it comes down to it, it, it Simon, you're, you're absolutely spot on. It's the way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily that you're bound by the legacy technology because you can't engineer your way around it. It's actually the acceptance that we do things differently. And insurance is such a staid and late to the game in terms of tech innovation. But they've learned a hell of a lot from the fintech industry in the sense that they're trying to leapfrog a lot of the problems that the banks have experienced. So they are starting to partner more quickly with fintech. They are starting to bring them in-house much more early. They are starting to underwrite the risk of these smaller companies, but then taking a portion of the profit. It's a rev share model. So there may be, Aviva may actually have a real advantage of doing this instead of someone like JP Morgan or HSBC saying, we're going to turn into, we are a fintech. It's actually a company that's learned from the mistakes of HSBC and JPMC. So I've pointed out the General Electric uh, transformation over the past 10 years a number of times. Um, the the key for me there is that they protected the small innovators from the P&L owners in the old business. Mm-hmm. So th- that that is something that as a CEO of an, an, an organization like this, it, it's very hard to do to how do you create that protective bubble around the innovation? Because I've often said innovation can't survive the gauntlet of running through committees and middle management inside large organizations. And we've talked a little bit about this before, Simon, you and I around the restructuring of the accounting systems that actually could enable banks to, to transform. And it comes down to where your P&L sits. Instead of having it on a product line, why don't you have it in a market segment? Why don't you reimagine what P&L should look like? Because you cannibalize one from another. You offer five different products along a single line of business. The problem is, is your resources, your time and your committee and your budget, you cannibalize one after the other. And you can't innovate when you've got that particular product in a silo. So if we actually take accounting as the first step, the prima facie of transformation and say P&L belongs, it has to be restructured differently. And we can't cannibalize it, and we actually have to turn the head of that PL into an innovator. It, it fundamentally changes the way the culture and the tech evolves. Imagine if we reorganized how businesses are organize their actual reporting lines around the customer. Precisely. They, they talk about being customer centric and then organize themselves in a non in a product fashion. If you're customer centric, you would organize your business around the you customer. Know who's having a good bash at this? ING. They reorganised their head office into um, scrums, and they they have one of everybody in that. You know, if, if you you know you take it at its most basic level without going into technology, they're having a go. They they've accepted that culture is a problem, and they're going right. You know what we're going to do? We're going to try working like that, and we're not going to try working like that with twelve people in a garage on the other side of the river. We're going to turn our head office around. Now, I don't know the ins and outs of how that's going to work. I don't know how successful it is for them, but they've spotted that. They're trying it. So. That's got to be a good start. <laughs> no, it's a brilliant start. But imagine if you actually overlay the accounting on top of that. It's not just how we work together inside of the organization. It's how do we actually account for the budget and P&L. And that makes a huge difference. If it is customer-centric and you are looking at customer segmentation rather than product segmentation, it's a fundamentally different question of how the systems are architected, the workflow goes, and and how people actually look at product design and delivery. And it, rebundling and unbundling don't become a question anymore because it's based on customer need, not on product need. That's a sage, sage advice. And Sarah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, Alex Ball at ING is a, a friend of the show. Um, several folks over at ING um, have... have 
been talking to us at 11FS about how they've done what they've done. And I think it is super interesting how they've organized how they do work. But I think Geller's point about how you organize, how you account for that work and how you measure success is is kind of the next step and, and sage, sage advice. Well, yeah, you have to hope that you have to hope that that's the next step. So if we start by getting them to idea the way, uh, understand the ways of working, then maybe they'll put some money behind it. Like maybe they'll put them- Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it's a chicken and egg. So uh, if you look at accounting differently, then you start to work differently. If you work differently, then you must look at accounting differently. Either way, it's a starting point. Alrighty, thanks everyone. Uh, time for some words from our sponsor. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to ft.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. And thank you very much to our sponsors. Next story up is uh, a very brief one, just uh, one here in the Cointelegraph saying a company called Coinbase uh, are valued at a billion dollars. Coinbase is a cryptocurrency exchange and wallet based out of Silicon Valley in the USA and famously invested in by uh, Andreessen Horowitz, as in the people behind Facebook and pretty much every fintech and tech unicorn you can think of. Uh, what's interesting is this puts them in unicorn territory. I don't know if they get to do unicorn on poos now but it's it's unicorn land uh, so for to say that the whole blockchain space was gonna disappear to have a unicorn there now is, is pretty interesting especially as the prices are going up and they can start to target global expansion so it looked like bitcoin was going away it looked like cryptocurrencies were going away now it's probably even too far the other way now we're seeing the bubbles and the excitement uh have you got any thoughts on this one sarah um the, the, the broader kind of cryptocurrency blockchain, or cri- the cryptocurrency space rather than the blockchain space, because there's, there's keep them separate. Um, <laughs> so Simon doesn't shout at me. Um, the cryptocurrency space, I think, yeah, the prices are going up too fast. I, am, I think we're definitely in bubble territory here. Um, and my concern is that it bursts before we get some regulation in place, which is probably what will halt this kind of like exponential rise. Um, so yeah, I interesting. I like the fact that it's an exchange. I like the fact that it's kind of some you know, part of the infrastructure. This coin, Coinbase company is part of the infrastructure of the cryptocurrencies that's that's doing well. I think that that's going to help. That kind of investment will only raise interest further. But I think the actual cryptocurrency side of things, something needs to be done to kind of halt that, draw that growth back a little bit, even if it's only investor education. Can I just make a point about we we mentioned earlier about fintechs not having any legacy systems, but Coinbase were having some real problems over the last few weeks. People actually exchanging. So uh, I guess, you know, it's not all about new companies having fancy, great systems. They've still got problems uh, as they grow. 
That's a really good point, Aiden. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that is uh, being a victim of success and having a massive spike in, in trading volume. And I think that's the kind of problem every fintech wants to have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Kraken similarly were, had um, lots of issues with people accessing them when, when this crypto boom really, really started. Uh, I think uh, my own personal perspective on this is that I'm reminded of a Scott F. Fitzgerald quote about um, you've got to be able to hold two idea, opposing ideas simultaneously and be okay with those. I butchered his quote, but it was t- to that effect. It's a sign of intelligence, yeah. is the ability to hold two opposing ideas at the same time. No, no, I like butchering things. It's fun. Um, so the the idea there is that it's both a bubble and it's probably going to go pop, but it's also a revolution and a change yeah. in how things are funded. And it remains to be seen if both of those are true, but it's, it's exciting times. Uh, alrighty, um, we're going to run through some stories because there's there's just too much interesting things happening in the world in, in the world of fintech right now. But there's one here in in the uh, uh, Nikkei Asian Review where Ant Financial seen becoming world's top consumer bank. Um, entirely possible with the scale of China, or are they a bank? The story was not really what attracted me. There's a little quote in here, but ultimately, I think we 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 all agree that Ant Financial is 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 the giant at the moment. They've uh, just a unique beast to be honest they own so much they're delivering so much they're looking to uh, get outside the chinese market but i think what really caught my eye on this story was a quote from edith young a partner at 500 startups uh, i think Ant financial will be the most successful bank in the world i really wish that paypal had been bought by amazon instead of ebay otherwise we could have had an Ant financial version in the u.s but unfortunately it didn't happen that just fascinated me and we've talked a little bit about this about you know we chat uh, you know, it, it, they, these these ecosystems—they can do so much more. Whereas the tech giants outside of China, we've we've not really seen them them play in multiple spaces yet. And I just thought that um, the the what if scenario of well, what if Amazon, um, you know, had bought PayPal, and also do they? So I think it's pretty. I think it's fair. We the story itself saying that it's seen becoming the world's top consumer bank. I'm mildly interested in that. I think it potentially will happen. And I know that Chris Skinner is, you know, he's very bullish that that, that will be the case. But for me, it's this, it's this, the what if the, so the, the right, Western yeah. tech giants had made, maybe made slightly different moves. Would we be in a different position today? Feels slightly biased view, but interesting yeah. to know what other people think. There's no great surprise there. I think that, yeah, um, Ant Financial are enormous. I think what's interesting is, yeah, that that, that what if piece. But um, what are your thoughts on why they're, they're so large and why we haven't seen an equivalent? So this is the question, right? So no, I think that nobody, I mean, Ant Financial could be the largest consumer bank in the world just by staying in China and getting a load of people on board. Like in terms of numbers, Ant Financial could, doesn't have to do anything. It could be could be the largest consumer bank. But whenever these stories come up, the question is then why haven't, why hasn't Amazon or Google or Facebook done this? Yeah, I spotted that quote as well, Aiden. I thought it was really interesting, especially given Amazon really pushing their lending business last week, mm-hmm. really pushing that they've issued $3 billion over, I think it was like six years or something, which is not great, but but they were really, really putting it into people's minds. They were issuing press releases and they were, you know, their, their CEO was talking about it. Um, not the CEO, the, the head of the department. I think the problem here, and this has been said many times, is that in the UK or the US, we all have financial services products. And whether they're good or not, they work. A lot of people in China do not have access to those products. So obviously, they're going to take a provider. Anybody who will provide you with it. If you can't get a credit card, because most people in China can't, you, you take another credit product or another payment product. That's logical to me. 
I can't see that kind of transformation happening in the US or the UK across Europe. I can see Amazon being very successful in lending because they have a small business, a small business ecosystem to support. So why not lend to your customers? Um, that's a very old model. It's a very old model for you to lend to your suppliers, you know, trade finance. Um, I can't see them becoming a consumer bank. I just, I can't, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I think first and foremost, it's a question of regulation, right? There are different regulations in, in the space. The second is a financial inclusion and an e-commerce play. That's very, very different than when we start to look at financial inclusion in Western Europe or in Europe and, and, and in the, the North America. So you don't have a, you already have customers that, that have access to various financial services in these two different markets. Again, Sarah, like you pointed out, China, the Chinese have a very different way of enrolling people into financial services. Secondly, they're not really taking deposits in the same way that a traditional bank would take deposits. Therein lies the difference. So can we classify it as a traditional bank or is it merely a, a temporary custody service of those, those transactions? And there's a big difference between a custody bank or a custody service versus an actual traditional licensed bank. So this is the famous quote of um, of a CEO of a bank I once talked to, which which we've mocked previously on this show, which is, why do I need to hold deposits? To which the answer is, well, you're a bank. That's what you do. Exactly. But yeah. actually, the, the context of that conversation was, but look at how much more profitable you could be if you didn't take deposits. And the, all of the other businesses around lending and, and uh, kind of financial services advice that are, are entirely profitable. And they've, they've managed some regulation and, and, and consumer need um, in in China to manage that. Our friend of the show, James Lloyd, uh, from head of uh, fintech at EY um, in Asia Pacific, always talks about China as being the Galapagos of fintech because it's some of the fastest rise of the middle class in history. Over a billion people in the market in an age where of the internet, we we just haven't seen that before. But it, uh, Jason was talking um, before the show, um, regular co-host Jason Bates, about how he's hearing less and less executive taking safaris to Silicon Valley and more of them taking safaris to China. And certainly there are things we can learn from Ant Financial in terms of how they've uh, leveraged uh, varied data sets to launch unique products into the market and, and much, much more. Just a point on the Amazon angle. Something that Sarah mentioned there was, uh, A, the story about lending is very interesting, but you, you mentioned this, the term trade finance there. And I remember at my time at HBC, it was something that terrified the bank there was if Amazon, you know, there are, now, how far are they off being bigger than, say, FedEx being their own trade, uh, you know, their own kind of delivery service, which ultimately they are. They're starting to own planes. They will be owning ships soon. And then if you've got the finance element of that built in, all of a sudden, you know, they cut off a lot of banks' big, big profit supply. And with Amazon heading towards being the first trillion-dollar company, I think I think there's a fascinating battle of potentially kind of e-commerce giants because you know alibaba came out of, of, of manufacturing e-commerce amazon doing it a slightly different way but are the two biggest companies in the world going to be from an e-commerce side but with uh, you know an element of banking in the middle just to to boost profits so world war three is amazon and alibaba fighting with drones clearly <laughs> there's your, your sci-fi plot uh, but but i think there's something interesting as well about amazon with amazon web services opened up their infrastructure and created a platform that everybody benefited from and became the first real example of doing that they could probably do that with their distribution but they haven't 
Cool. Alrighty. Uh, so next story up, Gela, there's one here where Polish fintech companies face a Brexit dilemma. What's happening there? Well, considering the election and considering uh, Article 50 and considering everything Brexit, um, what's quite interesting is there's a passporting and regulation challenge for any firm that has been uh, located in London but actually has operations in HQ sitting outside of London. And there are a few companies that have expressed uh, a real hesitation around the future uh, post-Brexit for for Polish fintech, one of them being Billion. Um, they're a D- DLT uh, payments uh, system. Asimo, uh, good friends that do cross-border payments or cross-border uh, exchange. And uh, my DocSafe, which is you know precisely around uh, digital signing and 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 security around documentation. The challenge is, is that, that the market in Poland doesn't have enough infrastructure yet to support them from an investment point of view. They don't have a secure uh, regulation environment as well in the sense that it's not well trusted. It's also not as transparent as the FCA. They certainly don't have a sandbox where people can go in and play with data and understand the implications of what they're doing on services. So to see a bunch of companies actually express hesitation around remaining in London or the future of remaining in London, but not wanting to go back to where or Warlash or wherever they happen to be based inside of Poland. That's a real concern because a lot of the tech that we see is coming out of Poland. I was there for Future Tech Congress uh, two weeks ago. I was there for Invest Warsaw, Invest Warlash as well last week. And a lot of these guys are really intent on building some interesting solutions, but don't quite want to stay there because the infrastructure and the ecosystem isn't there. Eastern Europe has for some time been tremendous for engineering talent. I mean, well, world, world class engineering mass, talent. It's got engineering, it's got an incredible pipeline from the university coming out. This is all the really complex cybersecurity algorithms and the mass that, that are that go into play around some of the complex uh, the complex things that we're doing in terms of privacy, identity, and and cybersecurity. And yet they don't have a, a space in Western Europe to play. But CEE is a fantastic reason in terms of talent pipeline. Flipping this on its head as well, um, you know, you had Zopa last week announcing that they weren't going to build their bank in England. They're going to build it in Spain because mm-hmm. they can get developers there. I mean, do you know how many of these giant uh, fintech unicorns have nearshore development hubs? Funding Circle does. TransferWise does. Zopa is going to get one. Like, there's another problem there as well. So, as you, you're abs- the point, the problem is the talent, actually, almost. Mm-hmm. Not the problem. Well, it is the, the problem. Biggest, the big, the biggest it, factor but, is talent, yeah. right? And that's and that is that is um, you know gathered in Eastern Europe in places like Spain. Portugal's got a big development hub as well, but as you say, they don't have the infrastructure to support the rest of the business. So this whole you know which city is going to win the Brexit battle if it's not London is going to be to me the country that can bring the talent in, support them and bring the investors in. And my money is on somewhere in Germany, probably, that can do that, if, I, if I'm honest. Well, like, I, because... But if if we keep if we keep the uh, people movement or the, the the freedom of movement question, then it then that's a very different factor. It's also cost of living. It's it's salaries. It's the quality of life. Um, it's a it's having a preset ecosystem that has a certain amount of investment already there, uh, that's attractive to investors. But also they have a a, a very stable political system. My money's still in Germany. <laughs> well, and, and that's that's just it, right? I think that's that's the hub that'll win, or that's the hub that will start to take away from uh, from the UK. The interesting thing is people are already getting offers from Luxembourg, Amsterdam, and Berlin to move, right? The the, the regulators and the ministries there are actually soliciting. So what is London doing to retain when we've, uh, we've got a question of uh, people movement, talent access, pipeline for STEM 
talent as well, and then cost of living and culture. It's very distracted right now in London. There's, there's just there's a political situation that says, heck, we're, we're just trying to keep a government together, never mind figure out what's going on. There's, there was purda for the six weeks before the election where you can't actually do anything with the civil service. So it was a kind of a silence from, from that perspective. So developing a, a reasonable policy response has been left to the companies themselves and been left to the market. We speak to Lawrence Wintermeyer at Innovate Finance a lot, and those guys have been doing a lot in terms of you know talking up the traditional values and um, getting together all the fintechs to, to kind of mount a bit of a peasant's revolt on the fintech side. Uh, but actually, from a policy perspective, that was always the strategic advantage of London. It had policy. Now Europe is um, kind of in a position where policy might not be the advantage anymore. Now you look at Singapore and you look at Luxembourg and say, policy there is moving pretty quickly um, and, and aggressively. It's moving at the speed of light in relation to what uh, what FCA and BOE. And therein lies the challenge is who's going to be responsive uh, quickly from a policy perspective, but who's also going to, to foot the bill and happily foot the bill? And how much of the funding is actually coming from government versus private investment? And so EIF, we're always the European Investment Fund, we're always very big into some of the, the local VCs in London. But once you went to your follow-on round, you had to look east or west. You look to Silicon Valley or you look to China. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how those uh, those new hubs look, look in those directions. Um, there's a last story here, um, which is a fun one from MarketWatch. There's a petition to call Australia's currency the dollary do, and it has 50,000 signatures. Does anybody have any thoughts here? Uh, I, lived in Aust- I lived in Australia for a while. I love Australians. I, I, I love the country. I've had an amazing, amazing time. I've been there on several occasions, but sometimes, um, <laughs> sometimes I, I, I wonder... Um, Is it just because they're bad at cricket? (laughs) (laughs) Let's not not start that. Um, I'm kidding, of course. I have to say, I didn't read this. What is the context for them wanting to do it other than them just being Australian? The Simpsons. Literally, it's a reference to a Simpsons Simpsons line. Fine. (laughs) And also, you can't judge a country by what 50,000 people will go for on a petition because we did have Boaty McBoatface, of course. So, like, there's uh, people are trolls, and I love that fact. But wouldn't it be fun if somebody renamed a currency just on the back of a petition? Wouldn't that be interesting? Like, I think it would be be a lot easier. I'd spend a lot less time writing AU dollar. Canadian dollar, US dollar. So yeah. I can they can get on board with it from that perspective. Uh, yeah, it's the Canadian dollar. It's the dollar I do. That, that, well, you've already got the loony. It's the unofficial name, right, for the Canadian dollar. It's the loony. So why not didgeridoo just unofficially? So I mean, who cares if it's official or not? Just start adopting Maybe it. Maybe I'll it's start the, it. Maybe when should. next time I write about Australian fintech, that's it. I'm going to talk about the way to do it. And there is a burgeoning fintech scene in Australia, of course. Oh, there is. Well, yeah. That, I mean, you're talking about Singapore and Hong Kong. Sydney wants in. Um, Sydney, well, Sydney, Victoria. Victoria is very big in uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency. They've got um, huge, uh, you know, investment going on there. In fact, the interesting thing about Australia is, it's like the US, you can have state by state regulation and state by state investment, which means you don't have to get everybody on board. You only have to get your little, you know, part of the part of the country on board. Like the regulators are trying really hard as well. The Australian governmental regulators, they are held back by the fact they have only got four banks, literally only four banks who are very big. So, and they, they, those four banks put their foot down over Apple. They say, we're not having Apple pay over here. Well, see, and there, therein so, lies the challenge. It's actually the bank ecosystem yeah. that is probably the, the, the biggest impediment to really having a burgeoning fintech scene in Australia. Yeah. It is the collusion of the four banks saying, no, Getting no. Getting way. Exactly. So, just on this story, in this in the story itself, you know, it's and from the campaign, it says this will make millions of people around the world want to get their hands on some Australian currency due to the real life Simpsons reference, driving up the value of the Australian currency. So the the, the article goes on to discuss about well, what if you did make a stronger currency through its brand? 
And, and would that be, would that be against the uh, Reserve Bank's uh, strategy, which it seems which this article does suggest, because they're trying to, to kind of weaken this to invite more uh, exports. So is, is there, I'm intrigued by branding of currency to change its value. I, I don't know when you talk when you talk fiscal policy and fiscal policy implications around trade financing, import export, and the value of the Australian dollar against the rest of the market. Going back to a singular comedic name makes zero sense to me. It has no logical purpose. What I was going to say was that the Austra- intentionally or not, the Australians have... Have you ever seen Australian money? It's red, yellow, green, and completely plastic with a see-through bit in the middle. It's completely plastic initially because, anecdotally, you surfers and sailors want to put it in their pocket and pay when they get out the other side without it getting wet. But if you want to talk comedy value for a currency, I would say the Australians have already tried pretty hard with the with the, the colours and everything. So, I think Aidan's point about the economic value of uh, of changing the currency is, is definitely limited. Um, but the, the, I think there is some tourism marketing value to this sort of thing as as a nation. There is some sort of like, hey, look, we're we're, we're interesting, we're different, we're we're kind of which is very on brand for Australia. Okay. The story I, I, made me think of the um, you know the painting of jesus that somebody restored and botched but basically an old lady restored a picture of jesus in her village ridiculously badly it went completely viral and now tourism to this tiny village that that she did it in has has kind of shot up by uh gone up to 150,000 tourists last year to see this painting that she botched so i'm not saying it's going to happen but just you know we can never understand the power of networks and, and virality. Um, that's all we have time for this week on Fintech Insider. Until next time, we've been Fintech Insider. You've been awesome. Please like, subscribe, tell your friends about Fintech Insider. If you want all the ramblings of the latest news in Fintech, if you want to stay informed, we're the place to be. Thank you. Thank you.